0: hello and welcome to the dash podcast i am your host trey gamage and i've got a special episode because dr chris reese is returning to join us on the dash podcast we had a conversation uh, earlier in the in the season we discussed a lot of great things about how culture should be now today we've got some more phenomenal conversation for you and before i get into that i want to make sure that you remember that every decision counts eight lessons I wish they taught me in school is out right now and you can buy your copy at TreyGammage.com go to Amazon or any other book retailer to purchase this book it's a social and emotional learning workbook for middle and high school students you can use it for explicit direct SEL instruction you can use it for your refocused intervention or just buy it for your family member to read at the house other than that I'm ready to get started with this conversation with Dr. Reese, because we've got a lot to get to today. How are you, sir? I'm really well, thank you for having me again. No problem, no problem. It was a pleasure, you know, I think um, your first episode actually, you know, it changed the way that I do some things and, and um, really helped me kind of to push that message for culture to be driving the, driving instruction rather than content. Um, and yes, I think sir. that's the point of SQL too, right, is not to to coddle our students and our young people, but really give them the skills that they need to manage and deal with the problems that we're going through. So I appreciate our first conversation, and I know this one's gonna be just as good. Yes, sir.
1: Let's <laughs> talk.
0: <Best laughs> you're, you're at a new school this year, um, and, and you've got some some changes going on. And at the same time, Dr. Reese, we've got teachers running for the hills, but so many people changing careers. We don't necessarily treat this profession um, as a profession. We don't treat our teachers like professionals. Uh, We hold our teachers to the highest of all standards, but we do not not pay them that way. We do not treat our teachers that way. What's going on with that?
1: You know, I used to joke to a lot of people about uh, leaving education and going to work at Delta Airlines.
2: Mm. And
1: I used to say, at least I will get a reasonable salary Wow. And free flight. And one of my colleagues actually joked and said, you'd actually do better working at Target because we have to wear some sort of uniform, whether it be flexible or not at work anyway. And so you might as well put on a red uh, polo Mm. shirt and some khaki pants, Mm. take your walkie talkie, become the manager and still make the same salary that you would make leading a classroom and at times even more. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. I have friends who have lower degrees and they make bonuses uh, that we can't even imagine getting in a year in education. And so there's a prestige um, that is socially connected to educating, but no one wants to follow through with what it takes in order Mm. to keep you just in the classroom. Mm. We all know that if you pay people more, they'll take a little bit more. And we have asked teachers to become more than teachers at this point. They're counselors, psychologists, paper trail masters. They are doing so much more than just standing in front of the classroom and giving instruction that there has to be some accountability in our local state and national government where we compensate educators for the hard work that they are doing. There are even school districts where The administrators, and I'm an administrator, so I can speak this language, um, are gifted with certain bonuses and opportunities if their schools perform. But what about the teachers? Right. Uh, We need them to stay in the classrooms. At this point in Georgia, there is such a shortage for educators that there is a plight to ask retired assistant principals to come back and serve as special education teachers. Hmm. Where, where that might be beneficial, and I agree with their presence being in the building because there's a level of experience that they bring um, that is remarkable. Why aren't we able to uh, hire and retain educators in Georgia? And so that's going to take um, explicitly looking at what we're offering, how we value the degrees that they bring into the building, what we do to keep them, uh, the uh, attitudes that we uh, put before them. Even the evaluation system, which we know is fair. I think that our TEEC system in Georgia is quite fair when we evaluate teachers and every state has its own practice for that. Um, but what is that connected to? If I am a quality teacher every year for 10 years, what's going to be the benefit of that? Um, and everybody doesn't have the, uh, the dream of becoming an administrator. Some people yeah. find their value in the classroom and don't intend to leave there and it should be just as profitable to continue teaching as it is to progress up the career ladder in education. And so um, it's something that we need to consider. Uh, I'm looking at the social constraints of teaching in my current building, where Mm -hmm. my teachers are overwhelmed with paperwork for accommodations, whether that be 504s or IEPs. And there are almost meetings because we're such a small staff in a Connected Magnet school program, that they could meet every single day after school. Hmm. Where is the room for tutoring students who are struggling or having the opportunity to make it home yeah. uh, due to daylight and savings time to the park before they go to bed, <laughs> to spend time with family or even have dinner with family yeah. without having to worry about uh, what paperwork is due. and I must grade this because people are waiting on the grade to pop up. There's no flexibility in that. And here is the problem I have with it. In college classrooms, that model exists already. I have been teaching as an adjunct at West Georgia for four years now, and not one time have I had to go to consistent meeting structures. I think I've been to three meetings in the four years. Yeah, There's no um, consistent paperwork being due throughout the semester. If there's an accommodation that must be followed, it's provided to me in the beginning of the semester. I sign for it. I read it. I implement it and we're done. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I am able to teach, create my syllabus, decide what my students need to learn, how they've mastered the information when they leave. And if that works for college classrooms and the goal of K-12 is to align students for preparation for both college and career life, then it shouldn't be difficult to revise all of the expectations that we have that we place on teachers that is overwhelming them. But I believe it's connected honestly to assessments. State assessments and testing has caused us to go haywire in in our governmental system and it's causing the school districts to have to meet those expectations and that pressure is not sitting at the top of those organizations, it's falling down into the classrooms and now teachers are saying, hey, I I can't deal with this, I can go make the same salary somewhere else. It's unfortunate. But um, in order for us to go back and pull teachers back in, there's going to have to be an incentive-based process and some morality changes uh, in our leadership structure so that we're able to convince them that this is the career for them so that we can continue to serve our children.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a lot. That's a a whole lot to tackle there. Um, And, you know, I I feel you um, on the college aspect. It's really easy to teach it's really easy to teach like the adjuncts. Um, right. Like you said, I, I haven't, I taught my first semester of Com 101. Like you said, they they wanted one assessment from me, you know, they one recap of of one speech that they did, you know, I had a few little structures, but got to create all that of myself. Where, where do you think, like, what age, age should that start? Should it be high school, middle school, elementary? Like, at what point can you trust teachers um, in the K-12 level to be able to facilitate their curriculum or those standards on their own?
1: Definitely high school. But I think there should be an intentional plan and structure built from elementary school all the way up so that we're not just throwing a a, a dodgeball at no one. No one's there to play the game with us. Um, (laughs) That's unfair to the teachers who are teaching and the students who are learning. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, Dr. Angela Woods, and I mentioned to her that I am bothered by the fact that middle schools don't technically mirror high schools. Mm. There are some middle schools who are still walking students in line. <laughs> Elementary school, great. You're walking in line. You're teaching them structure, order, organization, behaving well. You're putting all of those pieces together. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. So now we ask, why is ninth grade such a transition year? And you'll see all of these school districts throw all of this money and resource um, toward ninth grade programs, even creating ninth grade academies to see can they aid students in the transition to high school. Well, the problem is you left eighth grade in line. And so if you left eighth grade in line and the bell rings, the first day of high school, you don't know how to get the class on your own within seven minutes. If your all of your classes were next door to each other in eighth grade, you don't know how to walk to the other building mm-hmm. and go straight to class or get to your locker in time in order to make sure you have time to go to the restroom and go to class. So that's a lot of transition and change for a child. Mm-hmm. It's necessary, but we can solve that by making sure that each and every level models the intention in which we want students to go toward.
2: Mm-hmm. So if that
1: be the case, if high school is our area before we take them to college then high school classrooms in some way, particularly in the way we deliver curriculum, should m- mirror what we're doing in college classrooms.
0: Absolutely, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I think the other benefit or, or other point that you you brought up in um, your opening statement, if you will, is that what's, what's the benefit of being a quality teacher? Why, mm-hmm. why should I go home and grade these papers? Why mm-hmm. should I submit my lesson plans? Why, why should I be on this committee? Why should I join this team? Why should I follow this rubric? I'm not being incentivized for any of it. I have hmm. an expectation from A to Z, and my pay stops at B. Why, why would I keep doing the rest of these expectations if I'm not, if there's no um,
1: explicit reward or even implicit reward for following people? Right. And, you know, the funny thing is there may be places, uh, particularly charter schools where they have incentive based programs, but we know that there is no program that exists that fully gives teachers exactly what they deserve based on their performance and the hard work they do. And I also want to bring up one major point about that, too, because I want to make sure I cover all sides of that conversation. This is another thing I always say. and I mean, this blew my mind when I said it to myself, but when I say it out loud, I, I feel some confidence in it. There are teachers who are gifted to teach students who struggle. Yes. They may never have the highest scores in their building. Absolutely. Never. Wow. There are teachers who, I'ma just say it explicitly, suck. They don't have any strategies. They don't have any plan, any intention to do well. And they're given students who perform well or test well, and they may have the highest scores in the building every single year. So you can't base the incentive based on how my students perform, because if I've agreed to teach the students that nobody else will teach, I'll never show you Mm -hmm. on paper that they're the highest students in the building. Mm -hmm. But I can show you that they're, they're beating their own record that they are increasing their own strategies, that they're using their own ability to grow within their own selves, their own selves. So you may see one child come in reading on a third grade level, and this is sixth grade, but if I can get this child to read on a fourth grade level, that's progression. Mm -hmm. But why should that teacher be excluded from incentive-based opportunities Mm -hmm. because that child is not reading on a seventh grade level?
0: Wow. And that kind of, I think that translates across um, tiers, if you will. Same for that—that that gets into the barrier to entry conversation. You know, if I am teaching in an area that I love and, and I really want to work with these kids, um, but I'm not able to—I'm not able to ac- receive the same rewards or recognition because there's too many barriers, there's too many hurdles. If I need 80% um, efficiency. And my class is at 35% right now. Is that, is that really going to happen? You know, it's right. a versus achievement question. What do you, I think that's a good segue to ask, what What do you think are some of the misconceptions for um, teachers and parents when it comes to success in school and how we're working towards that?
1: You know, I had a parent tell me, uh <laughs> that we were no longer competing because we were no longer the number 19 school. We were number 16 at that time. We were no longer the number 16 school in the nation Mm. for one of the polls that we existed on. You all regressed, and so you all are not working hard. What are you going to do about that? I mean, that was a boiling question. I cannot tell you how far that got under my skin. Because who's to say we're no longer number 16 because another school decided to compete with us? Right. Everybody wants to be somewhere in the number. (laughs) And so who's to say that numbers 17, 18, and 19 didn't decide this is the year that we're really going to give that school a hard time and we're going to work just as hard and harder than they work in order to ensure that we move up the ladder. So both of us cannot be number 16. Someone has to move to 17. And so when the school behind us performed harder this coming year, or whatever conditions allowed them to have a higher score, could have been just better testers that grew up into the next school year. A lot of conditions are built into that. Parents and sometimes even teachers look at data as the same data you're looking at for 2017, 18 and 19 are the same students. Mm-hmm. That is not trend data. Mm-hmm. So if we take an, an exam, for example, for example, the senior exam for most students in Georgia is economics. It's a 12th grade exam. Right. If you look at the data for t- class of 2017, you'll see their data. 18, you see, class of 18 data. 19, you see class of 19 data. You're not looking at a trend within the school. Mm -hmm. There are different students with different conditions, different situations. You can't say that year to year this is what's happening to the very same students in economics because all of those three-year spans have different students. Exactly. Another misconception is when we look at graduation rate. Most teachers um, think that graduation rate contributes to who is graduating right now. And it does not. Georgia particularly looks at graduation rate in a 4-year and 5-year cohort. Mm. So if we're in the class of 2020, then we're analyzing the data from let's say class of 2016. Yeah. But it takes that 4 years to determine whether those students have gone on, started, completed done something in college gone straight to career it's hard to follow exactly what they're doing beyond our school and whether they actually graduated in time in the schools that they may have transferred to or from so they are looking at the data saying oh man this year you know graduation rate they got them out of there they leaving this year class of 2020 and we're not going to look at class of 2020 until 2024 so yes as a state as a district um as a national government as we communicate data we do need to be a little bit more specific about what the data means so that people won't have these mis- misconceptions about what they're reading because when they create their own narrative it's harder to uh break down the narrative that they've created than to present them the truth of it mm-hmm. and so that's one misconception i want to bring up um, access and um, equity sometimes there's this misconception that schools who perform lower that if they have higher parental engagement that it would contribute to the success of their school so where i agree with that and it's a high contribution you need parental involvement it's really important higher performing schools may argue that high parental environment involvement is distracting. It's not involvement, period. It's right. what type of involvement are you asking for? Mm. We're asking you to be more involved in your own child's life,
2: mm.
1: not set up 20 meetings with the teachers. <laughs> that's not involvement, that's yeah. borderline annoying.
0: Well, you, <laughs> you know, I heard, um, I actually had a meeting with the teacher the other day and he would say you know i wish some parents would ask their child what happened what did you learn at school today not what happened in your class today yes you know and yes that, i agree with that and then you end up getting uh, what happened oh that happened that happened that happened well where was your teacher i need to set up a meeting let me come to the school what did you
1: learn though what oh man what did you know you my friends and i talk about all the time that you know uh, particularly on the south side of the tracks if something happens, if a teacher said something to a child, uh, the parent's argument is, I'm going to be up there first thing in the morning. You've yeah. probably heard it before. Yeah. But what exactly are you going to do first thing in the morning? Number one, the teacher is teaching. Yeah. And do you really expect me to remove the teacher mm. from 27 other kids so that we could talk about the fact that your child was offended because there was a zero put in the grade book because your child did not turn mm. in their homework?
0: Mm. Mm. And that's that's the I, and and we're we're gonna get off on a tangent, but I want to stay on our access and equity because because you're you're absolutely right, and that there's a change too, and that that's when the parent involvement becomes more of a distraction. When you're, if if I do oblige to your concern and I remove my student from class or remove that teacher from class, how long is that meeting gonna be? Is that 45 mm-hmm. minutes without instruction? Is, is that? we're taking our parents maybe taking the side of their kids too much not trusting um what's happening in the classroom i think like you said that goes along with the access and equity um the the education level or the um the career path or whatever you know what factors from these parents are impacting the kids in class and that access and equity you know i think that determines what your engagement with your parents should look like if i've got parents that are mature enough to to come in and really support the school, support my reading coach, support us when we're testing, that's great involvement. But if I've got parents that are only coming to school to complain or tell me what you don't like, then now it's a distraction and, and I'm having to be forced to put out these fires instead of look at ways that we can continue to improve on our access, our equity, and bridge some of these gaps in growth for our students.
1: Absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, kind of staying on the, ac- the access and equity argument, too. I want to make sure I mention that as I do job interviews uh, for teachers year by year, there are teachers who leave college with a list of schools that they're only interested in. Mm. And they have no intention of applying or being accepted to one of the schools that they would consider bad. Just going to say it. We had a student teacher once who was serving in my 99% African-American school, who was assigned to be there, but had no intention of applying there or any schools on that side of town.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What he learned was that our students aren't as bad as he had assumed, and that our teachers were teaching. (laughs) So one one misconception is that there is less of teaching going on um, in schools that I served, such as this one with 99% African American students and a 90% African American staff, that there was a lack of teaching occurring. And that was never the case.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I see more teaching there at times than I've seen in other schools who are, uh, considered to be high performing. Right. But that doesn't take away from the fact that the teachers in high-performing schools are working hard as well, because there's a different type of work that occurs there. They're independent. However, right. What's that again? They're independent of each other. You know, they're They're independent of each other. Correct. Correct. And so my thoughts are that as we look at what schools need and what they're doing, you can't compare them at all. The equity piece is a concerning to me when it's, um, when it's institutionalized, if you know, a school has a problem with heat and air, then address that Yeah. because yeah. in some schools, you know, the parents just aren't playing that. Yeah. That shouldn't even be a conversation. Every single school should be filled with heating and air without a problem. Yeah. Um, I noticed that there are schools who are higher performing in some areas of Georgia where, um, uh, they are fully equipped. And if they find themselves at capacity, then the the plan to put them on the next BLOS budget to build them a new facility or expand their campus is almost (laughs) almost automatic. Mm -hmm. But I've seen schools where, you know, there's a high population of uh, Latino students um, where trailers are added, but there's no real plan to expand their campus or rebuild them a new facility. That's the equity piece and access to quality resources that I'm concerned about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, in my district particularly, whatever's available to one school is often available to all of the schools. However, if you do not know exactly what to ask for, you won't get it. Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: that's that and that's a big problem. That's a mm-hmm. big problem because if you look at a, a, a rule, just take a yeah, I know you're in um, a bigger city like Atlanta, but when I look here in a rural community like I have in, in here in South Carolina, we have some of the very, very same issues. I think South Carolina, there's a dramatic teacher shortage, I think of over 60,000 teachers. And mm-hmm. we have, so charter schools, I heard somebody say charter schools wouldn't exist if everything in public schools were going right. But then you, you start a new school, or even if you're at a failed school, I mean, Sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and I don't. If I don't know the question to ask, how are my resources helping me um, to be guided in the right direction? Now I know mm-hmm. that you recently had a transition from um, you know a, a lower performing school or you know a school on the south on the other side of the tracks, and, and now you're at a school that's that's more a more prodigious magnet school of the arts. How have you seen some of the problems of access and equity translate over between? um those two
1: demographics so um, the school that i previously served had an intentional leader she was very very um knowledgeable about what was available to students and she would capitalize on that here lies the comparison as well though the school i served was a title one school Mm -hmm. so there were already certain advantages that came with um having the amount of students that we had, servicing students who uh, had some sort of accommodation um, in any way, it was easier to look at what we needed and ask for what we wanted. Mm
2: -hmm. However,
1: um, and because we, you know, did well in athletics and we uh, performed as well as we could academically, there were some perks that came with that. However, the school that I'm currently serving in is in an older building and it needs more but the parent community and the teacher community doesn't see it as pressing as the students needed at the previous school. Interesting. So their focus is more so on that in which you can see because it's a performing arts school. Parents are really into um, the performances. They really like the fact that there is always something going on and that there is, you know, ticket sales that get sold out, they're into that part. Mm-hmm. But the facility in itself doesn't necessarily feed to the programmatic needs that we have. Mm. So what it does what I mean the problem though is that we'll have them complain about the facility, but everyone knows that it's only going to be a temporary argument. Right. At some point there will be something else that occurs that will either be good or questionable that will take their attention off of the task at hand. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm saying this as safely as possible, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm getting to a point where I'm just saying it now. The school where I'm currently serving, there are needs, but those needs are going to be met if the parent community stays focused on what they want. Mm. The other community could make as much noise as they want but because the previous leader is no longer there and serving in a different capacity, Mm -hmm. they may not get the same resources. And so Mm -hmm. I am concerned because one school is super high performing. The other is pretty average, but if that be the case for the average school, then what's really happening for the lower performing Mm -hmm. schools. If there's a gap in between what they have and what they need at this point, then a school that is at its lowest um, might not have a chance. Yeah. And what will happen is, you know, I think in multiple states, but particularly in Georgia, if you don't perform over a long period of time, then the state takes over. Yeah. And so part of that can be solved, to be honest with you, if we switch these teachers up. Um, we have teachers that will stay in the same building for 15, 18, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so if it is proven, it has been proven that you are a quality teacher and that you have something to offer, your pedagogical skill is superior, then why not go to the lowest school in the district and do the same thing that you're doing at the higher performance school? Yeah. But if no one requires you to do that, if that's not a part of the process from the beginning, then you're not going to sign up for that because I have teachers who just swear. That you know the south side is so challenging, and you know you and I know that on the other side of the tracks the students you know as long as you have snacks that's all they really want from you. <laughs> <That's laughs> you they want thing. your snacks. That's uh, the I, I used to keep a bottle of cologne in my desk, and one of my students decided he just wanted to smell good all of a sudden, and mm-hmm. I had to explain to him that you know cologne don't go with musk. Now you got to you know balance <laughs> that out. <laughs> but um, you know that you know the relational needs that they had are just different. Yeah, and you know they're great kids too. They're just a different type of kid.
0: Yeah, you know I think um I, when I was speaking with Ryan Clark, it was it was he was on episode one hundred. He made a great point um after teaching in North Carolina and also in Harlem. You know it's it's almost we almost have the same issues across the tracks, but the the one side is overexposed, and one side is underexposed. And I guess it, it, it might be even you know a, a bigger picture here, but when you think about like what side of the tracks you're on, you're, you're absolutely right. And we were talking before we got on, like with SEL, social emotional learning, we can look at that as coddling our young people, um, particularly in more black and brown communities, but, but you can't see it that way because those kids that aren't getting some of those life skills or, or they might not be getting read to at school or at home, they, they've got to learn how to, to make mistakes in a different way or deal with with coping. You know, they have to cope with somebody looking at it. I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with fourth and fifth graders getting mad at each other because somebody turned their neck at them or rolled their eyes at them. You have to be able to sit down with that student first and say, hey, like, where did you learn this? Like, what, what, how did you feel that someone did that to you? it's much more conversational and relational. Like you said, I've got to, at these lower performing schools, or or, I don't even want to say lower performing, but with black and and brown students, I've got to connect much more on that cultural piece before I'm going to be willing to learn from you. Um, And and I'm just going to say this, because the other day I was covering a class, a sixth grade class, actually, because I had paired that and the teacher had to go um, into that meeting. So I was with, these sixth graders did not have many plans with them, um, but they were focused on a lesson of respect. And one kid just started tapping on his water bottle and, um, and he started making a beat. And I was like, well, instead of just asking you guys to turn and talk and, and regurgitate what you talked about, about respect, let's make a rap song. So I just started rhyming and dancing a little bit and made it more of a call and response. So I'd say a couple bars, and then I'd pass it to a student. They're <laughs> a little, enough to, to attempt, he was like, no, pass it back. But we had so much fun bouncing back and forth on respect, and, and that, that got them. Now they're ready to learn. Now the next thing that I'm trying to teach them is ready to be engaged in it because now they're excited about what they're about to do. At a On the other side of the tracks, so or a higher-performance school, some of those kids are coming in ready to learn and understand the value of on their education because they're at a magnet school they're focused on these things and it's just not the same case on
1: both sides of the track as you say right and you know what the funny thing is you brought up an excellent point um as you look at the social emotional learning techniques that classrooms have and that they're continually implementing um ron clark is doing an excellent job here in georgia Um, ensuring that students have an opportunity, but I mean, his list of 55 rules, never met the guy, but I'm impressed with his work. And, you know, of course there are educators in Georgia who are jealous of the progress that his school um, is having. But when you look at the general rule structure of his school, he's looking at what do we need to address socially that may not be addressed at home, that we can specifically address as a school and continue to monitor and look at how we can progress the students' opportunities based on what we do for them and show them how to do it for others. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent model, excellent model.
0: I was fortunate to go to their teacher training at the Ron Clark Academy and I'll ask them, cause he has some fifth grade students who, you know, some of the kids are, are high performing, gifted and talented some have learning disabilities, some have behavior problems. Mm-hmm. But I saw these fifth grade students doing multi kinds of equations today, um, it was at the end of the year, but I said, well, how did you get them to this point? And, and you, know, you mentioned the Essential 55, you teach these kids how to tie a tie, how to wash your hands, how to communicate and ask a question right, or he, just the really basic essential needs of life. And once you can understand and grasp like, who you are and how you communicate with people, now we can build on that with whatever we need. So I think from, from that standpoint, too, I think, again, classroom management, cl- classroom management 101. Like, how do you, how do you get your teachers in a position to be able to handle, as an RTI or, or MTSS system would say, 80% of those behavioral um, issues that come up in class in your classroom rather than sending them to the principal's office? absolutely so
1: i have uh, two videos that i often share with others and i encourage everybody out there to check them out if you type in classroom management on youtube there's a guy named mr hester he has a trailer classroom and he talks about his story in the beginning of his video but he then goes into exactly what he does in order to ensure that classroom management begins on day one he's standing at the door in the video with a list of his students and seat assignments. And as they're entering, he quietly tells them, hi, what's your name? They tell them what their names are. And he says, it's so nice to meet you. You're gonna be seated in seat number 22. There's something for you to do on the board. And I'd like for you to be finished with it by the time I enter the room. Mm. The next thing he does as they're working and he has a timer on the board to let them know, at the end of an assignment, he tells them, That I'm going to count to three and on three I want you to hold the two sheets of paper up in the air and pull the staple apart Mm -hmm. place the second sheet on your desk and pass off the first sheet to the person behind you after they're all on the back row I want them passed around the back row all the way to the first row and pass to the front and I'm going to time you to see can you do that quicker than my other classes Mm -hmm. From day one, there was a structure, there are expectations, <laughs> right. there's a plan, there's a time limit. And so if he does this every single day, part of the reason um, teachers get stuck with, you know these behaviors are existing is because there's no plan to work around it. Mm-hmm. If your students are routing when they enter the classroom, then having a bell ringer up on the board can, be a start to controlling those behaviors. When I was teaching, my kids used to tell each other, bell rung, bell ringer. (laughs) I used to say it the first two or three weeks, and eventually they would beat me saying it. Wow. And that was the understanding that I don't want you standing up and walking around and talking. I want you to do the bell ringer. Let's get started. So when I come in, I'm coming in starting the class. I'm not coming in reminding you about the bell ringer. Mm -hmm. So if you explicitly outline what those expectations are and consistently enforce them, you will start to do what I enjoy seeing in every classroom. Students enforcing and policing each other. Yeah. And particularly in you know, African American classrooms, based classrooms, you look in, you know, that first time I hear, man, do your bell ringer," You know he don't like that. Mm. That's that's positive work for me. Now mm. we're responsible for each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I like to see that happen. The second video is a video way back from 1947, actually. And it's called Maintaining Classroom Discipline. There's a teacher who does it in two perspectives. He comes in the first time, and as students do things incorrectly, he tries to check them each time they do something wrong. And then he tells them how horrible they are in math because they didn't pass the quiz. And then he walks away, and then all sorts of behaviors take place after that. In the second video, he corrects his behavior. And instead of making noise about how bad they did, he highlights how great they did, and then gives them the tools they need and other examples to help them understand the deficiency that they had in the last assignment. Mm -hmm. He offers to support them. He walks around, he's present, he's engaged. If someone says something out of turn, he gives the attention to them instead of trying to shut them down. Right. As he leaves the room, a student stands up at the board and tries to throw an eraser, that's how old this is, at other students with chalk on it. When he enters the room, he catches them before they do it and say, hey, you know, something similar to, are you trying to join the baseball team? and cracks a joke about whatever the situation was and asks the student to have a seat. And he continues doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. If you put all of the attention on negative behaviors, we know this to be true then you're going to find yourself entertaining those negative behaviors every day. But you have to create conditions around them that you can say, these are my expectations. If you fail to meet them, there's a time and a place for me to uh, have that conversation with you. But what I am not going to do is stop teaching the others so that you can be entertained by it. Because when you look at younger grades, some of those students don't get the attention at home so doing things to annoy you is a way of getting attention. Exactly. And so uh those are my two video go-tos when it comes to managing classrooms. And I do believe that um if you have a plan that you will always overtake an opportunity. Mm-hmm. But if you have an opportunity without a plan, you have a problem. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I like that. Mr.
0: Metaphor. Um, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right there, and you know what I've learned as well over the past couple of years is that right there is social and emotional learning. You know, mm-hmm. teaching folks how to interact um, and how to how to behave in the classroom explicitly, but also implicitly at the same time. Like you're not saying, "Hey, I'm going to teach you how to follow my instructions. I'm teaching you my expectations. You may say that to me, but it's more it's more about my behavior and that expectation. There's right, you might walk into the classroom. There is no expectation, there is mm-hmm. no perspective, and there is no consistent consequences, rewards, or, or infractions. And you really can't win like that. So the whole school ends up putting out those kind of fires. So that's really good. I thank you for um, sharing that with us, Dr. Reese. It, and as we kind of end up closing out here, um. Let's let's close out with some of the direction for the future of education and how uh, we talked about earlier kind of modeling corporate America um, and modernizing our education system as a whole. I know a lot of presidential campaigns are talking about this and uh, there, there just needs to be a lot of education reform. So let's what, what are your
1: thoughts on that? You know, we have a lot of great programs and ideas out there that work and they work in certain classrooms, but it's almost time for us to revolutionize the way we do education right now and uh, t- try to combine some of those strategies and look for the direction in which we want students to go in and align them with those expectations. So here we are. There's flipped classroom. It works. I like it, but it only works for students who have been well prepared for it so what if you take a flipped classroom flexible seating and an uh, organizational structure where students meet in a standing meeting for their start of class and then turn that into a blended learning environment Mm. all in one classroom Mm. we have the niches and pieces that work but we haven't placed them together yet and the reason why i say we need to model uh, some corporate american uh, structures is because you'll see those models exist in one organization. They may implement standing meetings. They may have flexible seating uh, where your desk might be a, a high top table. They may have flexible arrangement where you can you know, use whatever space works for you or the task that you take on today has an option based to it. And it doesn't say that you don't have expectations for all of the projects to be completed. But people learn and perform differently in the way in which they do well. And so if you allow that flexibility and you give them the structure and place that they need, then you will get the results that you need from it. Um, I have a teacher right now who's trying to do a flipped classroom. Um, And so we have, you know, a combination of eighth through 12th grade in our building. And it works well for our 11th and 12th graders in mathematics because they have some type of uh, foundational um, reference to go back to before they look at the lesson and then they come in with questions. So it really works. But with the 8th graders, they're really struggling because they're new to the building. They're new to these strategies. And so to pre-read and come in prepared doesn't necessarily work for them. Right it doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it. It just means Mm -hmm. you should limit the way you try it Mm -hmm. and then combine it with another strategy that works. And so all I'm saying is that if we have, organizational structures in place, let's look at the government, for instance, and if the way we do congressional meetings works in order for us to operate the government, then why can't we use some of the strategies that we see in those forums in our social studies classrooms so that they're applicable to the knowledge base that students need to see and learn from. Mm -hmm. So um, the biggest thing I'm recommending is that if there's an area that we can progress their experience and open up their horizon of knowledge, then let's do that. Um, it's hard to learn about mechanics and how to uh, fix a car by just reading the textbook. Eventually, you want them to touch the car. Yeah. And it would help if the room that you use them, uh, used to in order to teach mechanic and automate uh, automotive work, actually looked like an actual shop. Mm. So that's why I was, you know, a proponent and a supporter of, of the CTAE programs that particularly looked like the actual work that they would be doing. When I was in school, I was interested in early childhood education. So I took dual enrollment courses on my high school campus where the professor came to us. And we used a room that was built for early childhood education. So if we had parent night, we could, you know, Um, host babysitting or um, child coverage while parents went to parent conferences with the teachers. Or if they had an infant and we were having an event, we could have um, student teachers there with a supervisor who could help uh, manage and maintain that learning environment for those children as their parents enjoy the event. And so I think those opportunities are important, but it's time to stretch past um, the CTAE programs or applicability, but to also look at our content classrooms and see what can we do to have them mirror the actual fields in which they represent. Yeah,
0: it's, it's it, and, and I think to kind of summarize what you just said in my head, it, it sounds like taking a systematic approach. You know, and mm-hmm. that's, that's what businesses use to run efficiently as systems. We take an innovative systems process to, to really, you know, make our environments conducive for kids to learn how would that change our education system, you know, and that, that, that will go a long way.
1: It sure will. I definitely agree.
0: <laughs> Man, Thank you so much for sharing this. I'm so glad we had to have conversation number two and I'll, I'll just let you know now we'll be in contact again. You, you're going to be a regular on the show here.
1: <laughs> it would be my pleasure.
0: <laughs> I love your perspective and in, in the thoughtfulness that you put behind teaching and, and you, you, you are, you're you clearly a born educator, but you're, it's not just in talent, but in
1: skill, you do the work as well. And I really appreciate
0: that about you.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you for your passion and hard work that you're doing and every contribution that you're making toward our children getting better opportunities and having a solid future.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. It's, it's important for um, people to hear black men having these conversations about education. Is there, is there anything else that you want to say to, to leave with our
1: listeners right now before we go? only thing I'm going to recommend is that you all follow me on Twitter. Uh, it is Brian, B-R-Y-A-N, Chris Reese. Um, and you can also find me on Instagram. It is uh, my handle name. There is uppity underscore African. So <laughs> I'd love to hear from you and Uh, here's some of the perspectives and great things that you're doing in your classrooms and in your schools so that I can continue to um, help lead the for the force as we move toward uh, better education strategies in our schools. I
0: love it. I love it. Thank you so much. This is the Dash podcast and I appreciate you so much for listening. Share this episode with your friend, tell a friend, follow Dr. Brian Chris Reese. He's got so many insights and he's open to having these conversations with everybody. And last thing, visit tradegames.com to purchase your. Every decision counts for your class, for your child, for your friend, or for your family. And we will see you next time. This is The Dad.